Uh, I remember there, there was one client that we were talking to. I got him to say we literally had everything from a product perspective. We had already trained like six of his team for two months on it, but we still couldn't get past that trust barrier. This hedge fund then had to explain, yeah, we're going to move and do all of our technology off of Elson. What is Elson? It's a four-person, five-person startup that's raised $500,000 sitting above a bank in downtown Crossing. And so we needed sort of that, that rubber stamp, that validation in the marketplace. Um, and that was kind of where we started on the white label product with Thomson Reuters. Why hello, Startup Nation. The early stage podcast rolls onwards. It is great to be back in the saddle for a whole new set of episodes. So it's been a while since I've hosted panels, but I was graciously invited to moderate the pre-traction fundraising panel at Startup Boston at 1.30 p.m. on September 12th at CIC Boston, right downtown. So my suggestion is come over and check it out. Uh, make sure your lunch hour is like 1.30 to 2.30, run out, catch a great session, get back to work. If you've ever wanted to say hi to me or maybe give me a hug in person, I've been told I'm a good hugger. Well, I guess this is your opportunity. So moving forward to the podcast here. I usually edit most of my episodes to around 30 minutes or so, but I had such a hard time figuring out what to cut in this one that I just decided, heck with it, let's just leave most of it in. So this interview with Zach Sheffer, founder and CEO of Elson, is a little bit longer than most podcast episodes. I'd say well, longer than, you know, longer by 15 minutes, but a full listen is definitely worth it. So Zach started his career in entrepreneurship, making $40 a day hawking candy bars from his locker in middle school. After writing an iPad app that overlaid technical indicators on top of real-time Yahoo Finance data, he fell in love with the financial services space. So our conversation shifts from finding market validation for Elson to riffing on value proposition, tips on working with large companies, especially financial institutions, having an obsessive customer focus, and the 20-plus hour cooking challenges with his friends that have become his zen. So listen in to check out how Elson is enabling anyone to harness vast amounts of data to make better decisions and solve the world's most complex problems. A huge mandate for a for such a small company, but these guys at Elson, they're ready for it. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you've been on a couple podcasts before, so you're an old veteran. Uh, something like that. Something like that. So when did uh, when did the entrepreneurial bite or uh, excitement first start? Was it was it a lemonade stand when you were a kid, or uh, was it something more concrete? Uh, I think my favorite. One was in middle school. I started a candy business. So I realized that everyone in my class, and even the teachers, they always wanted candy or like snacks. And we didn't, there was like no way of buying it in the school. So you had no school store in the lunchroom? No. That's ridiculous. And so I would go to the grocery store and fill up my entire backpack and then just up the rates like 50, 100%. So I was literally making like 40 bucks a day just selling candy to other kids in my class. And then the teachers started getting involved. So I made like a couple hundred bucks um, until I got in trouble. <laughs> Why would you ever get in trouble for that? Uh, for some reason, I don't know, teachers were getting upset that I was like selling things. Or something. <laughs> they thought it was like, like it, it, it was the uh, gateway drug to you being a drug dealer, maybe? I, I guess. It just it maybe, starts with candy. And, yeah, you just see this like kid like, what do you want? 
you know, and then I'm like, open my backpack, yeah, here, slide your, your locker yeah. open, right, right, like, I got all this stuff for you, yeah. you, you're looking for sweet, sour, chocolate, yeah, well, and I got to the point where I started actually taking requests, and then would have, like, an up, like, $1 fee if you needed specific things, yeah, so, like, got, did, did that just come natural? Uh, yeah, that one was pretty fun, yeah, I did really enjoy that, <laughs> well, and it was also, it was so, such an easy way of making money. What was your next venture? Like, I, you went to Northeastern, yep. and you spent a lot of time doing interesting things in engineering and statistics. You spent some time with Credit Suisse, just six months for a co-op. Yep. Did you find that the Northeastern model really helped uh, give you a bunch of ideas and thoughts as to what you could do in the future? Yeah, I would actually almost take it back even before Northeastern. Really? So the, I went to a really unique high school, um, actually back in California. So it was a, a project-based high school. Um, and so it was a, a charter school called High Tech High. So our entire class was about 100 students, 110. Um, and it was project oriented. So literally every class, no matter what we were doing, some was centralized around a project. So we, when we were learning about you know ancient Rome and electricity in physics and humanities, they, we had to create a board game so with electronics in it in order to like learn that subject. And so every sort of thing that I, I did in high school was always project-based. And that, would, I, I think, was like where I really started to kind of enjoy entrepreneurship was because everything we were doing was just how do we build this new interesting thing for this other topic. And that I just fell in love with. And that was why I really chose Northeastern was because of their professional services program, right? I mean, Northeastern, great university, but in terms of co-ops, in terms of, you know, uh, the professional stuff literally best in the country, probably even best in the world. Mm -hmm. And that was really one of the core reasons why I chose Northeastern um, to go to. Was financial services always a focus for you? Yeah, I, I think like a lot of people that have moved into financial services, I actually started on the engineering side. If you had asked me when I was in high school that I would be running a fintech company, I would have been very confused. <laughs> you know, because mechanical engineering, I've I, I still love, right? Um, I remember projects I've done, multiple internships, you know, have a couple of like patents and papers on heat transfer and fluid mechanic programs, right? And that was something that I, I actually still really love. And then I sort of just like fell into <laughs> enterprise financial services because mm -hmm. I, I guess to me, there's not really a difference between if you can do, you know, a, a Gauss Idel iterative calculator for plenum airflow analysis, you can do matrix algebra for <laughs> factor modeling, right? It's just putting a dollar bill in front and you just make a lot more money. And so uh, <laughs> what was the experience that you had that opened your eyes to the problem that exist, existed that Elson solves? So the, the first one was actually just in my personal life. Um, I was working at an engineering company in, uh, what was it? North Bilreka, um, just outside of, of Boston. Yeah. You don't go out there unless you're <laughs> working at a company, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do not ever want to do that long of a commute. That was way too long. Anyway, so um, I started getting really into personal investing because one of my coworkers was. And when I was just trying to build a portfolio and do some of these things myself, I literally couldn't find any tool that would help me with it or they were prohibitively expensive. And what were you trying to do? Uh, so the easiest one is... If you have a list of instruments that you're watching, you want to get sort of notifications when some, one of them has changed, right? And then you want to watch that intraday to figure out when you want to buy and sell it. Okay. And, and you were thinking about day trading at the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so really pretty straightforward. But the only thing that I could find that worked for me was to just build it myself. 
Itre didn't have it. Schwab didn't have it. They've got like bits and pieces, but you also have to get up into like their you know higher tier membership. You have to have a thousand bucks in your in your account no, to get them. Tens of thousands of bucks, and it's like no, I yeah, and still in college, you know, I had a little bit of money, but not that I'm literally putting you know tens of thousands into every investment. Um, and even the the tools, I eventually figured out what they had. Still, were always kind of one step short, and so it just got to the point where I was like. I'll just start building these things myself. And you did. Yeah. So um, part of the, the way that I actually got the, the co-op at um, Credit Suisse was I wrote an iPad app that would pull data from Yahoo Finance. and then Scrape data. Or did they have an API for you? Um, let's go with the API. And let's just hopefully no one from Yahoo is listening to this. <laughs> um, but pull the, yeah, basically pull the data in real time for some set of watch lists. And then I wrote a thing that would do the technical indicators on top of it. And it would literally just alert me when I should buy and sell companies. How'd you do? Good. Yeah. It, yeah, very well. Um, I mean, I eventually realized afterwards the types of strategies that I was building were actually pretty basic momentum strategies. Okay. Um, so one of my favorites is an estimate revision strategy. So you wait until companies have their estimate reports coming out. When ones that are going up or have exceeded expectations, they tend to pop really nicely. And then you apply simple intraday momentum on that, and you can do really, really well really easily. And can you do really, really well really easily even in today's market or have, yeah. have things yeah. changed? No, no, they still definitely do. It's really just a matter of how much money you're trying to put into it. It was really easy when you're only trying to put like ten, fifteen thousand into it because it's pretty easy to like put that into a couple of liquid instruments. Yeah, and you're not gonna you're not moving the market. Yeah, exactly. That that's the issue is once you start talking about like not fifteen thousand, but fifteen million or fifteen billion. It's harder to move fifteen billion dollars in five minutes. Definitely. Um, but when I'm only buying twenty shares of a company, yeah, they don't care. You're just a, you're you're a throw-in, a rounding error. Exactly. Not even yeah, less than a rounding error. Yeah. And so then you then you got to Credit Suisse, mm-hmm. right? After building this iPad app that they were so impressed with. Yep. And did you do some of the same stuff at Credit Suisse, or did they throw you into something different? Uh, it was the same stuff times like 50. Okay. Right. It was like the real version of what I was doing. <laughs> it's probably a true education for you. Yeah. Oh, no. And that, that was exactly why I wanted to do that is the the best thing about the Northeastern Co-op program, and I, I talk about this to everyone who will listen, is that it's a great way of just trying out different things. I had literally no idea if I would like enterprise financial services. This was like my way of sort of testing if I did, and I absolutely fell in love with it. And so now you're sitting here, you're, you're building models, you're understanding how the system works, and you're telling yourself in your head, man, there's got to be a better way. A simple example is I would try to communicate with one of the other analysts, right? And the way that we would share things is via email, right? Like he had a script that I wanted to use in order to run some analysis for a client. And the best way is for him to send that to me. You didn't have a central repository for all of these scripts. There, there wasn't even a central repository for our main code, not even alone like the random things. But also, I remember, you know, we were doing some custom client work. And at one point, we needed to run a big thing. And it was going to take like 40 hours. Wow. Right. And Why? Just because it was so complex? No, just because they were running on still, you know, a set of servers sitting in a closet. Right. And that's, I guess, kind of the... You know, almost scary part is that's actually the state of enterprise financial services, which is despite these large asset managers holding hundreds of millions, billions, trillions of dollars, many of them are still using technology from 10 plus years ago. That's just the nature of legacy business. Yeah. But it, it's almost the interesting thing about, I would say that financial services is even more so 
just because there's like that there's like an increased sort of like scared factor right they are more reserved in those things and so they're even less changing than other enterprises because the downside of losing is to them there is just so much higher than the upside of succeeding exactly right and shifting to different platforms it it, it opens you up to a lot of risk uh, 100%. And, and that's why I think what's so exciting for Elson, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping ahead for a second. It's cool. What's so exciting about Elson is that if you look at sort of the market dynamics now, we're, I, I think, really poised to do a very good job. Yeah. <laughs> and you've been at this for a few years. Yeah. So how did it start? Where'd you uh, find your co-founder? Uh, yeah. So we started um, actually like right out of Northeastern. So there were actually two co-founders at the beginning. Um, both of them also at Northeastern. So um, Justin, who was the original, Justin, who was the original CTO, he, um, him and I met actually in freshman year programming courses. So he was doing computer engineering. I was doing mechanical engineering. Um, we ended up then living with the, living with each other. And him and I bonded over. Uh, <laughs> we had this really funny overlap where he was still up at six a.m. or like five a.m. doing his homework. And I was waking up to go to work. <laughs> wow. And so we like bonded over these like 5.30 a.m. like programming thing, like questions. We were, it was weird. It was a weird time. Nerds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and then he ended up coming on as the, the original CTO. Um, and then we found Ryan uh, during our senior year who does all of our UI UX stuff. Because one of the things that we, we realized is you could deliver the best technology in the world to, to an enterprise, to someone. But if they don't know how to use it, it doesn't matter. And the user experience, the user interface is so critical to everything. Um, and so Ryan has, well, at the time, you know, 12 years of experience doing that um, at consulting firms, at running his other startups. And we were like, dude, we need that expertise as part of sort of the founding team. Um, so, so what happened? What were the assumptions that you guys went into V1 of this product? And... How many of the, what assumptions were right and what assumptions were wrong, forcing you to pivot into something else? Uh, so I think the one assumption that was right was we should do something in finance. I think everything else was wrong. <laughs> okay. So what was wrong? <laughs> what, what assumptions were wrong? Well, so when we, when we first got started, we actually were focusing on uh, B2C, so direct to consumer. You thought the people like you who were building your own algorithms and momentum trades, yep. you might want this platform. Well, not even that. We just thought that regular people should have a better way of investing, especially leveraging really high-powered quantitative tools that typically are hidden to everyone, right? And we're like, how can we just help regular people? Like, how can we help our mom or our grandma in a couple of minutes create and test a sophisticated strategy mm -hmm. and then implement that? Right. We're like, that seems like that'd be really cool. Sure. Um, to get them away from just putting all their money into a Vanguard ETF. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we can give them a better risk profile, we can give them better returns, make it cheaper. Cool. That sounds That sounds like a good thing to do. Sounds reasonable. Um, but then we realized that uh, consumers are really expensive, right? It's really hard to get. Acquire. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's just the cost to acquire is very expensive. And we pretty quickly, we just weren't able to raise enough capital in order to go after that. And that was sort of like the impetus for us to focus on not consumers, but the enterprises, so larger asset management shops. And did you have to change your platform in any way in order to suit their needs? We pretty much just um, deleted a bunch of the user interface code. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and then we started working on 
that was kind of like our V1 of the system. So we used a lot of that knowledge for kind of V2 of the platform um, and what has now eventually become the end platform. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And so you, you, you talk about focusing sort of very specifically on three things. You drive, you ingest a ton of world-class data from yep. hundreds of different sources. Uh, and I know you've got S&P 500 uh, as one of your data sources, Thomson Reuters as another. Yep. I mean, you've got, you've got lots of great data sources. Yep. You combine that with fast, high-powered processing and good technology. Yep. Because I know um, some of these algorithms, like you said, took 40 minutes, 40 hours, right? Some of these take a long time to process. So you guys cut that down, yep. uh, and then you make it easy to understand. I'm right? saying, man, you just sold it. I love it. I'm, I'm a sales saying. guy. It's a problem. That's perfect. <laughs> I, I, like, I pitch everything I can find. Um, and, and so when you released this product yeah. to asset managers, and you sat there and watched the first few demo this thing right in front of you, yep. um, walk me through that. Uh, yeah. So when we first sort of started working on V2 of kind of the platform, started pivoting towards enterprises... Um, we actually did, we resonated very strongly on the product, on the workflow, um, on sort of what we had built as well as the platform and like the roadmap. We actually, people were like, this is really cool. This makes a lot of sense. We could totally see ourselves using that. Um, and then when we actually were like, okay, let's have you buy one and start using it. They're like, no. (laughs) Um, and the reason for the, the biggest reason that we saw was, uh, I remember there was one client that we were talking to. Um, I got him to say we literally had everything from a product perspective. Um, we had already trained like six of his team for two months on it. They could do everything that they wanted. Huge investment for you. Uh, yeah, ton of time. I mean, but we were you know early stage, so we were like you all do, in with your customer. Yeah, you do anything to make a customer successful. Period. Yeah, there's no. Yeah, exactly. Um, we were absurdly flexible on the right. We literally would have taken anything, or like we would have taken like ten bucks, candy bars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not even a whole candy bar. Um, (laughs) But we still couldn't get past that trust barrier because they were actually still an early stage head fund. And they had to then report their technology, their data and everything to their LPs who they're trying to raise money from. And so this hedge fund then had to explain, yeah, we're going to move and do all of our technology off of Elson. Which no one has ever heard of before. Yeah, which is, what is Elson? It's a four-person, five-person startup that's raised $500,000 sitting above a bank in downtown Crossing. <laughs> yeah, that's not really going to really fly. And so that was really... Eye-opening? Yeah. Well, and we, we knew that enter- enterprise sales was hard. Um, I think that we kind of uh, didn't think that enterprise financial services would be that much harder. And so we needed sort of that that rubber stamp, that validation in the marketplace. Um, and that was where we were like, let's partner with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of where we started on the white label product with Thomson Reuters. Okay. Now, how did you meet them? How'd you find them? So we were actually working with them um, as a data client of theirs. Okay. Um, and then, so we met partially through the FinTech Sandbox, partially through the side um, as a data client of theirs. And so we kind of started the conversation with them like, hey, can you give us all of your data? <laughs> And we don't want to pay much. Yeah. <laughs> um, startup. Yeah, exactly. And so we were talking to their, you know, their actual quant data team um, internally. And we we're like, here's what we have. Here's what we want to do with the data. And they're like, wow, this is pretty cool. Uh, we've actually been thinking about offering a new product to our end users. Do you guys want to work together on it? And we're like, yes. That's a wild opportunity. Yeah, it was very opportunistic. And we took that opportunity and sort of ran with it. And so what has that rubber stamp done for your business? 
Uh, it, I mean, made people actually know who we are. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I mean, the great thing about working with Thomson Reuters, so Thomson Reuters, well, pre-acquisition Thomson Reuters, right? Um, 13 billion in revenue, you know, tens of thousands of employees literally around the world, world-class vendor, you know, one of like three vendors in the world that people, everyone in financial services know about. You can't beat it. Yeah, so getting that rubber stamp, getting a product out, getting access. I mean, we have now signed their clients around the world onto that product. Um, we've done webinars with them. We've gone around the world with them, right? Like basically nothing could have compared to that, both from an exposure standpoint, but also just from a getting access to the clients. Um, Cause one of the, the I, I would say beyond the revenue, which is always super great. <laughs> um, one of the things that we've learned with Thomson Reuters is just how to sell this product. Right, we've been part of every single training with every client, as well as hundreds of internal people. We've supported every client. We've done reactive, proactive support. We know how to make customers successful, right? And no, learning that, um, yeah, is very, very valuable. How do you define success with a particular customer on the platform? Yeah. It's uh, in my own exploration of Elson. It was sort of hard for me to put my finger on it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it because it, it changes a little bit for each client. So um, you mentioned some of the, the value props. So I would say kind of more specifically, two of the things that we often help clients with are generating more alpha on an existing strategy. So through that, like portfolio attribution, factor attribution, looking at new investable universes, sort of the way that we help them. Or the second is creating new investment products, potentially like an ETF or a smart beta product or an index or a new active portfolio. So basically, we initially say, which of these sort of buckets do you fall under? Okay, you fall under the, you have an existing strategy and you want to make that better. Okay, how do you want to make that better? Is that by looking at new data sets? Is that by looking at a different region? Maybe you're just in the US and you want to do something in Europe. Okay, do you want to potentially change any of the other rules around your strategy? And pretty much once we know those three things, we can make someone successful in a few days. So looking, just stepping back for just a second and thinking about the Thomson Reuters deal, um, you talk about it like, hey, we found each other. We They said, hey, we, we have a, a, a want to build this type of platform. Yep. Let's do it. And it was all hunky-dory, yep. but probably not. Uh, I'm willing to bet that there were some tense moments, some challenges working with big companies because I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, it is so rare to get a wonderful partnership together between yep. a startup and a big company. How were you able to make it happen? Wait, you're saying that working with big companies isn't easy? I don't know. I, I should have been more sarcastic <laughs> with this whole thing, but yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think the biggest one is, I mean, Thomson Reuters is just a massive organization mm -hmm. um, and Elson is not. And <laughs> it's, it's They have more people in their innovation lab yeah. in Boston than you do in your entire company. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, they are big. Yes. And I, I think it's just getting the time frames aligned, right? You know, we're like... You want it done in two months. Yeah. and They like, want it done in six. They want it done in like a year. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that was the biggest one. It was just kind of the aligning of the time frames. And then because we were doing a white label product, we need to also get all of their salespeople, regional people, account managers, marketing folks, everyone also aligned understanding the value prop, how to sell it, how to talk about it. 
And so that was the biggest one was just, I, I think we underestimated how much work we needed to put into making that successful. And so we just spent a lot more time doing that. It's easy. It's easy oftentimes for the startup to sometimes get like railroaded, like mm-hmm. run over and squashed by yeah. a big company, both in like, how do we price this thing? What is yeah. the revenue share? How does this all work? Um, in your experience with Thomson Reuters, did you feel like, like, did they ride that line of, of, of being sort of their, their aggressive yeah. self, but also respecting you guys? Or how were you able to keep them in check and keep that balance going? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there were, I think, definitely times for both of those, you know, and we've been working with them for, you know, about two years now, a little over two years. And so there's always moments where a big company sort of flexes its muscle. Um, I would say that we have really, really good internal champions, you know, that initially brought this in because, um, you know, you mentioned top, like big companies are hard to work with. If you actually look at Thomson Reuters historically, they don't do a lot of partnerships like this, right? So they don't even have a process necessarily. Exactly. And so the reason why we were able to actually even get this through is because we had really, really good internal champions who were constantly helping us to make sure we were doing that right. Um, and then from like the FinTech Sandbox, we had really good champions from that program. So we knew people pretty much not just in the business unit that we were working with, but all across the organization at like all levels and had champions pretty much everywhere around there. Um, and it was really just because we were very patient on some of those times where they did try to, you know, flex their, their muscle. Um, and then we just do a really good job that we were able to kind of make sure that everything moved through successfully. So oftentimes when a, a small company yeah. announces a big deal or launches a big product with a big company, yeah. a lot of fi- a lot of questions and opportunities stop, start to pop up. Yes. Uh, some will say, well, if they launch something with Thomson Reuters, well, some will say <laughs> if, they, if they've launched something with Thomson Reuters um, and this is a really good product, well, maybe Thomson Reuters will acquire them. Yeah. Or... Um, other companies that might compete against Thomson Reuters might say, wow, look at this awesome thing they did with Thomson Reuters. Yep. Maybe we should be doing something with Elson too. Uh, did the launch of that product with Thomson open up a bunch of opportunities? Yes. And and was it almost immediate or did it take some time for it to bake in the market? Uh, no, no. We put out the press release. Uh, it would have been, I think, like the beginning of 2017 or right before that um, around the initial launch of the product. And Pretty much immediately, because we also then announced um, fundraising as well. Strategically. Yeah. Uh, And so raising money, announcing a big partnership, and then we started doing a ton of events with Thomson Reuters. So we had, you know, dozens of events already scheduled. You're on conference, you're on stages at conferences, you're doing the roadshow. Yeah. And so all of those things definitely contributed to tons of inbound and Half the time, it's us just figuring out what stuff we actually should be paying attention to. Right. Um, right. Because you could, your interest could get diluted. Because everyone wants you to do something special, something custom. But it seems like how you've built out the platform now uh, with the APIs, it allows those groups to do whatever the heck they want. Exactly. I mean, within legal bounds. Yeah. No, I mean, we're still very, very careful about how we think about that because, you know, we've, once you've made the mistake of overstretching yourself once, you don't make it again. Right, because you end up hurting yourself with potential clients, and in enterprise financial services, again, you you don't get a second shot. Of course, right? You get one first impression, and you get actually you just get one impression. You don't even get like, yeah, if you mess up once, you're done. It takes years to recover that. So, uh, launching a cool joint product with a big company is a cheat code. 
right, to greater success in, in leveling up. Are there any other cheat codes in the fintech world that either you've experienced or that you've heard others talk about that really do great things to accelerate a startup's development in that space? Uh, so I think on the enterprise side, the other easiest way is to raise a bunch of money from a strategic. I think those are those are really the only two ways that I know of, so yep. Yep. as you say, kind of cheat code. Um, because then they have this massive interest in, in pushing you to all of their clients. Yeah, well, typically... I it's mean, all about client scale, huh? Yeah, well... Typically, when a big asset manager or big financial institution gives someone a bunch of money, they're typically also their biggest client. <laughs> yes. Um, and then that is an even better sign, I think, than, yeah. So you guys have been super lean, and your team has been relatively small for yeah. having such a, a big impact on the market. Yeah. Um, why have you um, intentionally kept your company the size that it is, uh, and have having raised the relatively small amount of money that you've raised. It seems very intentional. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've always been pretty, I guess, conservative, even since the beginning. And we've always wanted to keep sort of the expense line growing at the same rate as the revenue line. Um, otherwise, things tend to turn red very quickly. Yeah. Um, then you start burning money, then you have to raise more, and you yeah. get diluted more. And Yeah, and it's really easy to spend money. Um, sure is. Yeah. Uh, and so... Again, we we had you know previously actually made the mistake of bringing on some people that we shouldn't have, and that was a lesson that we did not want to repeat. So being pretty pretty careful about that. Um, and again, one of the most important things that we learned with Thomson Reuters wasn't just how to make money with them, but also how to make customers successful. Um, and coming back to I think that first experience that we had, you know, three and a half years ago now, where we can make the customer successful, but we couldn't like we. We needed to make sure that we could do that entire package before we really felt comfortable mm -hmm. scaling quickly. Um, and again, we wanted to make sure that we did that correctly. Only two important things. <laughs> In inevitably, customers, some customers churn. Yeah. What Are you using those experiences to improve your service and improve your product? And what are sort of like the most common reasons why you might get someone to churn? Uh, so we haven't had any yet. I mean, we, again, are... Wow. Yeah, we are very, very... Sticky? Well, not just sticky, but we also, again, we sp the most important thing to us is customer relationships. So we are, like, uh, we use um, an in-app chat in, in the application, and I think our median response time is, like, two minutes for every trial user, every client, like, for, you know, around the world. It's kind of uncanny. Yeah, like, we are... Zappos method? Yeah. If, to if read so, the book? I haven't... Oh, I need to. I think yeah. it's on my bookshelf. But I'm sure you got like 20 on your bookshelf. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> Good to great, all of those, right? <laughs> so many. There's, there's just too many, actually. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't need them all. Uh, yeah, well, and I, I, we can talk about I met up with uh, Barbara Lynch the other day. Nice. And so I've got her cookbook and her autobiography that I'm ready to read next to. Did she sign it? She did. Dude, she's so cool. She's, she's like my favorite person. I, I'd love to meet her. Yeah. Did she cook you anything? No. Did she give you any advice? Uh, she... Yeah, her advice was to set a goal and to not worry about the risk. Just live in the moment, right? Because, yeah, I don't know if you know her. Sorry, I didn't mean to switch, completely switch topics. But she is really, really cool. And so um, she is the youngest of seven children, you know, grew up in Southie, you know, not like the greatest. Like, she didn't graduate high school, but has wow. managed to literally grow. A culinary a, empire. Yeah, right. You know, literally the some of arguably the best restaurants in Boston and she is not stopping at all. Right. And that, that was what I found so amazing is 
she is like still doing a hundred different things and always trying to improve every part of it. And it was just like the, the way that she could just like decide make a decision and just run. Yeah. Not, not think twice about the consequences in, in some ways is like incredibly like liberating. Yeah. And scary. Yeah. But like just seeing that, you know, I think we were all just super fired up after talking to her. Um, yeah, and I we we're also right around the corner from Number Nine Park, so she was already like my favorite person ever because they have fantastic food and fantastic drinks. Whenever you guys close a big deal, you go to Number Nine Park. Uh, sure. Or just when we need a when we need a good meal, it's just so yummy. <laughs> it's just so yummy. <laughs> You're clearly a food guy. <laughs> yeah, my girlfriend and I are, uh, and actually, I should say more than my girlfriend and I, my best friend and I. It's more like him and I, and then the girlfriend sort of. We she it. she benefits from the yeah from that the mind the mind meld that yeah. you and your best friend have uh yeah I think she's also gotten a little a little worried about us sometimes um, just because we we do these epic uh, mandates where we literally set <laughs> from um, we will usually either start at like five o'clock on Friday and end at like three p.m. the next day why right? like it's, it's a twenty plus hour Wh- event what are you doing. So, I can give you an example. Yeah. So, um, we we like to make each one of them a, a theme, right? And so, the person who has to pick the theme and sort of the overall idea rotates. Um, so, we were doing... He wanted to do a hearth, right? This was over the winter. Oh, so, like, uh, Dutch oven type stuff. Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, stews and... Yep. Like, home... Like, warm home cooking. Exactly. And so... Um, the, the first phase is always actually going to the grocery store. You have to go to the grocery store. Cause what we realized is the like best part about doing like a dinner party is one, the food is good, but it's also just like a good way of interacting and talking to and hanging out. And it just gives you like an activity. So we make that entire thing. <laughs> so going to the grocery, meet up at the grocery store, go to the grocery store together. Get Wh- all which grocery store do you go to? Wegmans, uh, you go to... We usually do the Whole Foods in okay. in the South End. Nice. Yeah. Um, that's usually... High our... quality stuff. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Especially meat. Yeah. Yeah, we... Despite us making it all ourselves, we still end up spending a lot of money, but we could spend a lot more money. <laughs> to get the same quality. Yes. Um, yeah, it's great. <laughs> and so uh, that one we were doing uh, short rib and really good <sighs> potatoes. Um, short rib is my favorite... My favorite meal I ever had was short rib at Mills Tavern in Providence, Rhode Island. Yum. And uh, Providence has such a great culinary scene, underrated because mm. Johnson & Wales, the culinary school is there. And they a lot of them go yeah. across the country, but some of them stay in Providence and Boston and New England. And uh, and I walked in there. And it was a date with my then-girlfriend, now wife, and I got the braised short rib. And uh, I, I don't get emotional about food, yeah. but um, – <laughs> I took a bite. I took my first bite and I just stopped. I couldn't speak. Yeah. And I ha- I just kept going until I finished. And every bite was just magic. Yeah. And it was it was special. It was one of those sort of like magic moments. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't have those too often. And it was, it was special. Where is uh, the favorite dish you've ever eaten and in what restaurant or at home? Oh, geez. Wherever it has been. Uh, define favorite. Give me your qualifications. So I, I you can have, break it up. Yeah. Well, so I've got I've got two definitions for favorite. Um, one is the meal that you could eat every single day, 
and be totally satisfied. Okay, so that's not what I'm talking okay. about. Okay. Well, and then there's the pinnacle. There's favorite like that that one. But if you have it again, it would be not the not, same. Yeah, not it, the same. It'd probably be terrible. Yep. Um, I actually tried to have my short rib again, and yeah, it wasn't it was probably, the same. Yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. Yeah. It was, it was a specific day, time, chef, restaurant, ingredients. Well, meal. and it's also like what you had before. Like, it oh yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Everything. Ambiance, who you're with, like yeah. the experience. Yeah, and that that's yeah. Um, so I think my my favorite food memory um, was I was living in Chicago, um, and this is when I was working at, at Credit Suisse. And you went to Alenia. Yeah. No. Yeah, and so oh, my, I wanted to go. <laughs> yeah, and so my my sister's a chef. Um, my aunt is a, a chef restaurateur. Has run multiple so this, things. This runs in the family. Yeah, and so they're no, they're they're on a completely different level. They're nine levels above me. Okay, on on a scale from like one to ten. Yeah, they're incredible. Um, and so uh, and then my my mom came. It was. One, just beyond incredible food, but also having my aunt and sister there, like, how in the world, what is, what are we having? Yeah, right. And like experiencing it with chefs who totally understand what's happening. Yes. Um, although the, the, the one thing that was the funniest was, um, so Alinea is like weird, sort of like dark room that you like walk into, pretty dark. And there's this on our table, this giant ice cube, literally like massive two feet tall, one foot wide, and it's got what looks like melted candles on top. And we're just like, what? Okay, this is a weird place. We're, we're going with it. We're seeing what happens. And then, like, as you actually start eating the food, you realize that, like, everything is just, like, means something. And so we're like, this, stu- this, this ice cube is going to do something. Um, and so... It's melting on the table. No, it, it's it's not melting at all. I don't know. It's it's hard to explain. I don't know. It's just like a great ice cube. <laughs> um, and so we we were you know having a couple glasses of wine, and we were like seven courses in. So we've been there for like an hour and a half, almost two hours at that point. Um, and my mom was like, "I really I want to touch the candle," and we're like, "Okay, do it." And so my mom goes and like puts her finger in the candle and like pulls it out, and is just like, "I have no idea what this is." Um, and then the, the, you know, like waiter server comes up and hands us four straws and is like, your next course is the ice cube. Um, cause apparently it was actually this like pomegranate reduction as like a middle of the thing palate cleanser. Whoa. And so we all just start dying of laughter because my mom like is sticking her finger in our next meal. In this pomegranate yeah. reduction. <laughs> so oh. There's this like incredible thing that's been sitting in front of us and my mom is apparently like putting her finger in it and we just start dying of laughter. Um, yeah, that was definitely one of the favorite. I mean, the other parts of the meal were absolutely incredible. Like, um, one of these like cheese sort of like cubes and it like explodes in your mouth, uh, which is really cool. Um, the dessert, we had the, the sort of like cylinder, it's like a globe, like a chocolate globe. And they lay out a mat in front of you and paint you a picture and then drop the globe and then it explodes with like chocolate and other stuff, and you just eat off of the table. Off the table. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've, I've watched some uh, chef's table. Yeah. And you just see some of this crazy. Yep. And it's all delicious. It's it's and it's all a story. Yeah. It's so yeah. So that that one is is abs- was yes. <laughs> so so in making another reference between or an analogy between cooking and eating and your startup, um, what was can you pinpoint a very special day or a very special moment uh, in Elson's history and 
and what happened. It can be something obvious like, hey, we just put the ink, you know, the, the pen to paper on the Thompson deal. Or it can be something that maybe even your colleagues don't even recall but was really important to you. Uh, yeah, I think the the one moment whenever I'm always kind of thinking back on Nelson um, was actually after we raised our, our first half a million in the angel funding back in December of 2014. And so the three co-founders, we just went and had dinner. And that was like, just like a, a great experience. I mean, we were all super excited. Tired. Yeah, we were tired, <laughs> super excited, like, you know, and going through raising money for the first time ever, especially as, you know, I was 24 at the time. Really hard. Yeah. It, like getting that 500 was painful. Um, yeah. And raising more money is, yeah, funny. Um, and so we were all just like beyond ecstatic, so excited about what was to come. Um, and we just had a great meal. And that was uh, definitely one of my one of the ones I always kind of look back to. Mm-hmm. I, I look back and I've got some special moments, but then I look back into my startup experience at Level Up and there was some really bad days, like yeah. really bad days. And I can think of one of them, which was actually probably the worst day of my life. Um, and that was letting go of a large, a large number of people. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I know you experienced something similar where you let go yeah. of some people. Um, but are, are there elements of this startup game and sometimes it's a game, uh, yeah. and oftentimes it's life, uh, but that um, that y- you didn't expect would be as hard as it, is, it is, as it has been? Yeah, well, um, I think the, the issue, and I, I was actually, um, I was having dinner with one of our investors last night, and we were talking about this as well, because um, he's you know, 30 years older than me, and he kept on talking about how his biggest issue is that he is too emotional, right? And I was like, yeah, I, I totally get that. And so... Um, I'm going to steal his answer, which is, yeah, in, in no way is it a game. Like, it is, uh, at this point, like, Elson is a pretty significant part of who I am, right? And you always hear that for, with, like, the first-time founders, where it's, like, it's literally a part of you. It defines who you are. Like, that failure defines you. You are now a failure, which, you know, I'm working on... Not the, truly true. Yeah, but, yeah no, uh, absolutely, yeah. To, to everyone who's listening, it's not true at all. But uh, it feels like it. Yeah, right. And especially, you know, at this point, I'm, you know, almost four years into it. You take things personally. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, absolutely. And so slowly sort of, like, trying to get better at that, <laughs> um, you know, and maybe when we talk about this again in five years after Elson is, you know, multi-billion dollar, maybe it'll be different, but probably not. <laughs> So looking into the future, yeah, uh, to get to that multi-billion-dollar valuation, easy, tons of revenue. What, where are you going? What do you um, need to do in the next few years? I would say piece of cake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, uh, yeah. I mean, so right now, um, basically, we're really doing a lot more of all those big direct enterprise selling, as well as a ton more channels. Um, it's hit the ground and go. Like yeah. you, you got to build, do you have to build more data partnerships? Do you need to so, find more channels? Like what are the, what are going to be the keys for the next couple of years to scaling you guys? The biggest one is actually just expanding our, our sales team. I mean, the nice thing is I, I think we're now actually at a point <laughs> where we have done enough small clients and we have a ton of validation. We're starting to get much, much bigger clients and we're realizing that we actually can do that. Right. And getting that validation, which is basically like the domino for getting all the other ones. 
So I get the feeling that the next year is going to go much, much quicker <laughs> than the last year. Um, we're going to, one, drastically expand our sales team, add a ton more big clients. We're probably going to add one or two more channels, and we're going to add 200 more data partners. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to have to at least double your team, probably. Uh, yeah, at least. Probably more than that. Yeah. But that's, uh, that's I, I think, the, the exciting thing. So, you know, over the next couple of years, I mean, because really, ultimately, so one of the, the real novel things that we did was we actually wrote a new programming language, basically as a replacement for SQL in financial services. Um, and so taking that language and basically getting it to the next level, continuing to expand asset class support. And you're going to have can, to build a developer community for that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But like, how do we take that language and actually make it the foundation for not just, you know, the sort of one part of asset management and analytics and data extraction we're doing now, but the basis for all of it, mm-hmm. right? And how do we continue to add more applications, more things into that, you know, essentially network to make this the modern paradigm for what a financial backend should be, right? You know, so think about the really the largest companies in the space, you know, BlackRock, which is beyond massive, Right. How do we how do we get to the point where we can, you know, acquire BlackRock and acquire Thomson Reuters and acquire Bloomberg? Right. That's where we need to get to. Well, maybe you never need to do that uh, because yeah. because they're going to be data partners. And well, where's the, the the true value of your platform is in the toolkit and the and the and the engine itself. Right. Yeah. I just like to I just like to think that we're at one point going to acquire them. I think that's just it's a fun right. idea. We will take you for your data. Exactly. And you're not in and, and your industry <laughs> knowledge. Exactly. Yeah, um, and their clients. Yeah, of course. So, and, and so, um, yeah, but that's still, you know, five, ten years out. <laughs> a couple of things to do before then. Definitely. And um, looking back to before you started this, um, do you, you do you have any do you have any regrets about things that you didn't do? Sometimes startup CEOs, you get so deep in your company uh, that you rarely pop your head out and say. If I could do this all over again, would I have done something different, uh, either with your own career or even over the last couple of years with your startup? Are there are there things that you might have done differently if you had to do it all over again? So I, I often like ask myself that, um, and just I, as a learning exercise. Yeah, well, and I, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, something like that. Um, I, I I think about that one a lot. And I often think that um, I would potentially, you know, and what's funny is like, then I, I look back and I don't know if these paths would have actually been beneficial and I would have never even started a company. Um, you can never play back other situations, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, so um, starting Elson quickly out of school, you know, I think was one really, really helpful, but going and working at larger corporations and getting more enterprise experience before I think would have been helpful. Because um, it took you a little longer to get up to speed. Yeah. Well, and the, the, you know, the connections that you have with those companies are the way that you sell to them initially. Mm-hmm. Right. And for sure, for sure. We've made that purposely, well, not purposely, but we made that harder on ourselves not having those connections beforehand. Yeah. Well, so that's what happens when you start a company out of college, right? Yeah. You just, you have to grind in a different way. Well, but then half the time, I also think that I should have started the company earlier 
Really? Or started something early. Well, you know, and now you, you hear about, like, you know, kids in high school and actually in college doing this and actually being able to raise, you know, even, like, pre-idea or very early stage money and, like, actually getting two companies under their belt before they get to, you know, where I, when I, I started Elson. Right. Um, so I, I often go back and forth between, man, I did this so late. I, I'm already, you know, past the prime, never going to be able to do it. And then half the time it's like, I should have waited another 10 years. Um, so it, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. I think the, the answer is I have no idea. And <laughs> I, Every every other path. Why seemed, bother? Why, why, why bother thinking about it? You're you're already so deep in what you're doing, yeah. right? Um, well, it's like every other path. The what's the the grass is always greener. Of course, of course. And so, um, so uh, last yeah. question. Okay. You've got. If you had to pick up the phone right now, and make two calls. Yep. One to someone who would automatically say yes to be on your board. Yeah. And another an executive of a company or someone else who would automatically say yes to being a client of Elson that isn't already a client. Ooh. Who are those two people? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so I think the the first one, um, one of the people that I, I really like in the Boston fintech community is uh, Sarah Biller. Of course. Yeah, I love Sarah. Um, and you, re- you want her to be on your board? Well, yeah, and I, I think... Or I, you want more advice from her? Uh, well, both. I, I think at, at some point as we make the transition with some other round of funding, um, I probably shouldn't ask her over a podcast, but I will probably... <laughs> this, is, this comes out in about a month, so maybe you can <laughs> take her out to lunch and prep her for yeah. that. Um, she'll probably be on the short list for like an independent seat, though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because she's absolutely awesome. Um, the second one, if and the second one is like a hypothetical, if I could get them to buy and actually... Or is this like someone who we're actually talking to that I want to buy now instead of in three months? It, it does, it, it's You pick up the phone right now and you say, let's do something. Let's work together. Let's get you guys started. And they say, yes, it doesn't matter who. It could be someone you're already talking to. It could be someone who you haven't even been able to get through to. Yeah. Who's this, who's this person? Uh, What's this company? Yeah. So it would either be BlackRock or Fidelity. So if I could get one of them to be a client and get them to publicly say that, that would be a good day. It'd be but, a huge day. Yes. Um, but we'll worry about that next year. Zach. We've got some other things to do. Fantastic. Well, um, I love the story. Um, I love the passion. And I'm excited to see what you guys do in the future. Congratulations on the platform you've built with, uh, with a team that is only growing. Uh, and hopefully continue to continue to find some incredible success. So thank you for coming on the pod. Yeah, thank you very much for having me.